the Australian Defence Magazine podcast. Serving the business of defence. With Grant McHeron. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. In this episode, we're presenting audio from the ADM Space Summit held in Canberra back in November 2021. At the end of some of these presentations, James Brown, CEO of the Space Industry Association of Australia, will ask the speaker some questions that were posted by audience members. We hope you enjoy these speakers and the information they present on the development, growth and expansion of the Australian space industry. We start our collection of presentations with Chris Hewitt, General Manager for Strategy and Industry Growth at the Australian Space Agency. He's going to be talking about ways to develop the Australian space industry. There we go. Thank you. So the agency's purpose is to grow a globally respected Australian space industry that lifts the broader economy, inspires and improves the lives of of Australians and is underpinned by strong national and international engagement. And I think it's well known that our goal is to triple the size of the Australian space industry to $12 billion and create an additional 20,000 new jobs by 2030. We are the front door for Australia's international engagement on civil space. And we ensure that Australia's space activities contribute to economy-wide productivity and employment and the advancement of national knowledge and capabilities. The Advancing Space Australian Civil Space Strategy sets out a 10-year plan to ensure Australian space industry secures a bigger share of global space. And in part of my reading into the role, I've been going through the submissions that many of you made to the, uh, the recent inquiry into developing Australia's space industry. And it was really encouraging to see the support for the space agency in those submissions. So can I personally thank you for those and let you know that we have heard those submissions and have heard what you have said. And, uh, and I think you can look forward to an exciting agenda uh, over the next couple of years from the space agency. So let's look, let's look at uh, where the space industry is at the moment. In February this year, we published the Australian Space Sector Economic Report, 2016-17 to 2018-19. It's a snapshot of the current position of, Australians, of the Australian space sector. And here are some key figures that uh, describe the industry. Across that reporting period, we saw an 11.3% increase in the number of organisations operating in the Australian space sector. We saw employment grow by over 1,100 direct space jobs. And we saw a steady increase in space sector revenue from 4.3 billion in FY17 to 4.6 billion in FY19, which is a 5.8% increase over the two years. And we also saw an investment pipeline of approximately $2.02 billion. So this is the period during which the space agency was established. It effectively forms the baseline on which we will build to $12 billion and 20,000 additional jobs. One of the key facts to note from that economic snapshot is that that the investment pipeline is accounted for by about 770 million or so inbound from private industry and the remaining 62% percent 
from government sources, including academic sources. So we can describe the current state of the industry as uh, industry investment being driven by government at this point in time. Digging deeper, the Australian space sector is defined by us as a space-related activities along the space value chain and as part of the broader space economy. It consists of four segments, manufacturing and core components, which include ground control facility construction for ground segments and satellite manufacturing, space operations, which would include transmitting and receiving data to satellites or launching a satellite, space applications, which includes activities such as production of hardware and software for Earth observation, and enablers. Based on our economic assessment, we found that in the financial year 2018-19, more Australian organisations operated in the space applications and enabler segments. And this represents where Australia presently has the strongest capacity and capability. However, of course, it also demonstrates where the opportunity lies. And today I'll highlight many of the things that government is doing to balance out investment and value across, that, across the four segments. I do want to acknowledge the very close synergies between the civil space sector and defence. In 2015, a study by the Asia-Pacific Aerospace Consultants Group found that 72% of Australian space companies also had defence as a customer. This demonstrates the very clear overlap between defence needs and civil space needs. It's been very exciting to watch the development of the space domain under Air Vice Marshal Kath Roberts, and equally exciting to see the enlarged profile that space has and space was afforded in the 2020 Defence Strategic Update. The planned investments described in the DSU that will be realised through the latter 2020s and into the 2030s represent very substantial investment opportunities for an Australian industry. But we know Australian industry is not ready for those just yet. Here's another statistic. 74.3% of Australian space firms are small to medium enterprises. So in that current trade-off between local industry co content and capability, Australian firms presently are not at the level to provide the high-end systems that the ADF requires in 2030 to shape, deter and respond. But at the Space Agency, we know that we can get there and we can help you get there. The agency is driving toward developing a local industry that will be competitive in the 2030s to partake in Defence's activities. And we are grateful for Defence, or grateful to Defence, for sharing that attitude with us and working towards us towards that goal. The advancing space strategy, the civil strategy that the agency developed, has four strategic pillars that will establish a civil space industry, opening doors internationally, building national capability, being a responsible domestic and global space citizen and inspiring the nation. The government has invested more than 800 million in these pillars since the agency's inception. And we work with our partners in Geoscience Australia, CSIRO, the Bureau of Meteorology and the SmartSat CRC to ensure that these funds are appropriately invested through the industry and research sector. These four pillars will create opportunities for exports through the partnerships that we develop with our international partners. They will help demonstrate Australian technology on orbit 
and establish space heritage for our technology. And they will inspire and build a space workforce, crucial for meeting the needs of defence in the 2030s. And just as important as all of those, they will create the right regulatory conditions that will give confidence and success and build our social licence. To do this, we are developing technical roadmaps. These roadmaps provide vision, ambition and aspirational capability targets for Australia's space industry. Activities under the four pillars that I discussed are guided by our seven national civil space priority areas. Position navigation and timing, earth observation, communications technologies and services, space situational awareness and debris monitoring, leapfrog R&D, robotics and automation on Earth and in space, and access to space. You can't help but be struck how similar these are to Defence's space priorities. Our Communications Technologies and Services Roadmap was released last year and we expect the Earth Observation Roadmap to be released very soon. And we are prioritising the remaining technology roadmaps over the next year. Government's investment is further accelerated by the $1.3 billion Modern Manufacturing Initiative that was announced in the 2021 budget. Space and defence are two of six national manufacturing priorities as part of this initiative. This is a major opportunity that will connect the space sector with Australia's advanced manufacturing sector and help to balance out investment across the four segments of the space economy in Australia. In July this year, four companies took a share in $14 million of funding to build their manufacturing capabilities for space. Projects range from the manufacture of rocket engines to remote sensing payloads. And as part of the strategy, a space manufacturing priority roadmap was developed. And the roadmap identifies key areas of opportunity and has short, medium and long-term goals. Within two years, the roadmap sees manufacturing of space products in Australia that are flight qualified through testing and demonstration. But within five years, we see these technologies being demonstrated on orbit and the, the demonstration of that all-important space heritage. And within 10 years, the roadmap sees greater end-to-end -end manufacturer expertise, including designing, testing and launching products from Australia, such as small satellites to low and medium Earth orbit. So let's turn now and quickly go through some of the initiatives that the Space Agency has underway to build Australian industry and get our technology into global supply chains. The $19.5 million Space Infrastructure Fund is about investing in space infrastructure so that organisations can focus their resources on their core technologies. For example, Fugro Australia Marine was awarded a $4.5 million grant to establish the Australian Space Automation, Artificial Intelligence and Robotics Control Complex in Western Australia. This will be available to start-ups, small and medium enterprises and research organisations who will utilise the facility to control robotic activities on the Moon, Mars, perhaps beyond. The Pawsey Supercomputing Centre in Perth was awarded a grant to establish the Australian Space Data Analysis Facility. This new facility will improve space data analysis for areas such as Earth observations, space missions and space situational awareness. And the agency is continuing to implement our flagship program, the $150 million 
Moon to Mars initiative. This program will fuel the growth of Australian industry and businesses while supporting NASA on its Moon to Mars space exploration program. Most importantly though, it opens up for Australian industry entry into the global supply chain that feeds NASA. We have three distinct programs. The supply chain program is about getting Australian products into the international supply chains and we've awarded about $5 million in grants so far. The demonstrator program focuses on developing and launching products to build capability and once again space heritage in Australia and we've awarded $4 million to about 20 different projects as part of this grants program. And the third and final element of the initiative is the Trailblazer program. This is the signature piece that will see Australia play a direct role in NASA's mission onto the Moon and to Mars. And Australia has real value to add here, unique value, especially in foundation services, which leverages Australia's unique expertise in remote area operations, found especially within our resources sector. Foundation services in the defence context could be known as force integration. It's the remote operation of automated technologies in a system of systems. These will play a critical role in supporting exploration missions and build towards and maintain a sustained off-earth presence. And Australia has an opportunity to become a global leader in their application in space as we are on Earth. And we get our first chance to demonstrate this technology on the moon in 2026. Just last month, we announced the Space Act Agreement with NASA as part of the Trailblazer program. This will be a $50 million investment in the development of a semi-autonomous Australian-made rover for a future NASA mission to the moon. An industry-led consortium of Australian businesses and research organisations have the opportunity to develop the Foundation Services ro Rover. The rover will collect regolith, the lunar soil, which contains oxides, and then deliver that soil to a NASA facility, a NASA extraction facility. NASA will extract oxygen from the regolith and take a key step towards sustaining, or to establishing a sustainable human presence on the moon and supporting future missions to Mars. It's very exciting. The global space launch services market is expected to reach $29.6 billion by 2027 and Australia has a unique opportunity to be part of this given our geographical advantages that make us an, an attractive destination for launch activities. At the agency, we are passionate about opening doors for our national space companies to launch their own technologies and payloads from home soil and about attracting greater investment from international launch customers. Australia's space regulatory system sets the conditions for a globally respected Australian space industry. This is an, imp an important area for the agency as the regulator for civil space activities. We aim to promote an internationally recognised regulatory framework that enables entrepreneurship and sector growth while assuring risks to safety and other national interests are managed appropriately, including Australia's obligations under United Nations treaties. We have recently set up, uh, we have, sorry, we have recently made a significant investment in our Office of the Space Regulator. Chris DeLewis 
joined as the General Manager Office of Space Regulator on the very same day that I joined as General Manager Strategy and Industry Growth. Chris's focus will be on engaging with industry and establishing the right kind of regulatory capability. Our role in opening doors internationally is one of the critical value adds that we provide to Australian industry. We, are, we provide opportunities for export and for wedding Australian industry into the global supply chain. Some examples of how we are focusing on this at the moment include prioritising a technology safeguard agreement with the US, which we are negotiating currently, supporting India's Gaganyaan mission, its first human spaceflight program by offering tracking capabilities from Australia's Cocos Keeling Islands, and together with Austrade, unlocking new trade and investment partnerships between Australia and the UK via the Australia-UK Space Bridge. SmartSat CRC recently awarded $500,000 in funding to five collaborative research projects to explore space technologies with UK organisations. So I'm looking forward to hearing all the speakers today and to relearning about my old area of defence and space. Uh, and of course, I'm looking forward to meeting all of you, as many of I can, in the breaks. But most of all, I'm looking forward to, in my new position to positioning Australian industry to be able to take advantage of the many opportunities that space, the space sector offers in Australia and overseas with defence and in the civil sphere. So I thank you very much for your time and I'm very happy to take questions. Chris, uh, thank you very much. Um, so those of you who have questions, we've got three at the moment, if you want to pop them into this um, pigeonhole app. The, the first two questions, Chris, are sort of around a similar theme. Um, What's the Australian Space Agency doing to ensure sustainable and responsible uses of space? How do we... Thank you. How do we ensure orbits remain available for future generations to use when international groups are massively increasing space assets? And on a similar theme, um, and congratulations for Duncan Blake for winning the prize as the first person to mention the Russian ASAT test. Um, that test put the lives of cosm cosmonauts at risk how do we cooperate, uh, how closely does civil and military space need to cooperate together? So both questions around how the agency views responsible management of Earth orbits. Well, of course, uh, the agency was very disheartened, uh, disheartened sorry, by um, uh, Russia's activities uh, during the week. Um, and as an illustration of how closely we, the civil and defence areas uh, work, um, we were in constant contact with Defence and the OSPOC as, as that situation developed uh, and we worked closely in drafting um, a response, an appropriate response from the Australian Government. Uh, uh, the, the peaceful use of space uh, and the responsible use of space is absolutely critical and this audience knows better than any other uh, how space underpins activities on Earth. It underpins some of the things that make our very civilization function the way that it does. Uh, and to, uh, to threaten that uh, by irresponsible actions is, of course, against all our interests. And the agency uh, did put out a statement 
the head of the agency, Enrico Palomo, put out a statement expressing those concerns, and we will continue to do that. Um, one of the ways that we encourage the responsible use of space is by being active members in the international space community. Um, and this is where all the threads of our strategy come together. Uh, Australia has a strong voice at the UN, and we're looking to strengthen our voice regarding space activities at the UN. Uh, that's one way through the multinational, uh, multilateral uh, mechanisms. Uh, we are strengthening our relationships with international space organisations uh, globally, uh, and we do that through obviously participating in programs such as Moon to Mars, um, but also the Gaganyan Space Program, um, the UK Space Bridge, and, and many other MOUs that we've established. Um, this gives us a voice uh, in those organisations and helps us to build consensus uh, throughout um, the space community globally, which just makes uh, the call for a, a rules-based order in space stronger. Uh, and we are developing space capabilities. Uh, and your voice only uh, counts if you have skin in the game. So Australia increasingly is putting investment uh, into space and becoming a space-faring nation. So those three things together are how we hope uh, and intend to shape the international space environment and ensure that uh, everyone acts responsibly. Thanks, Chris. The, the next two questions are around launch, and, and as a test um, for you, I want you to try and pick which one of these questions came from a launch company. <laughs> um, the first question is, what is being done to improve the regulatory framework to enable launch in Australia? The second question is, with the incredible pace of development and very low-cost space launch, is it feasible for Australia to develop a globally competitive launch industry? All of the above. <laughs> uh, uh, so, uh, so I'll take the first question first. Uh, what's, sorry, what is the space agency doing to improve the regulatory conditions? Excellent. Uh, as I mentioned, Krista Lewis, who is my counterpart, uh, began on the agency, with the agency on the same day as I did. Now, um, uh, his position and my position are not just new uh, band one positions in the public service. They are... Uh, or new band one um, occupants of positions, I should say. These are entirely new positions. Uh, I've just come from the Department of Finance and I can't tell you how hard it is to get an SES position uh, in the Australian government at the moment. So the fact that the agency invested and in government is willing to in invest in these positions um, is evidence of how seriously they take, firstly, our industry growth remit, but uh, importantly and pertinent to this question, how important it is that we have a focused senior leader on space regulation. So I can't give you today the uh, specifics about how Chris is going to uh, engage with you, the industry, uh, and, um, and uh, uh, establish a regulatory framework that enables entrepreneurship and drives industry growth. But I can assure you that for the first time ever, <clears throat> the agency, or Australia, has a dedicated senior officer whose full-time job and only job is to do just that. So I, I, I suppose I would say in answer to that, to that question, stay tuned, there's more to come. That's putting it all on the other Chris. That's exactly. Great. Well, he, that is his job. So. Okay. Look, la last question um, 
for you, uh, sorry, second last question, uh, is really around how we go faster. So you've got a 10-year sort of horizon for most of the manufacturing that we're trying to do, most of the, cap the capability that we're trying to build. Um, other countries seem to be going faster. How do we speed things up in Australia? Yeah, and <clears throat> that's an excellent question. And <clears throat> if, I mean, looking at the statistics that I presented from the economic snapshot, uh, that's good growth, um, but it's actually not the targets. We, we actually need to accelerate that growth if we are to, um, to reach our goals of uh, 12 billion and 20,000 jobs. Um, so at the moment, we have focused on a um, strategy of grants to, uh, to, to uh, industry, uh, which is appropriate for the, for the state that industry has been in. In other words, it's, uh, it consists of startups and small and medium enterprises. But there comes a point where we need to transition to something more substantial, um, and uh, we are exploring what this means. Um, because I think Australian industry needs to do more than just demonstrate they can win grants. Uh, Australian industry needs to demonstrate they can win contracts. And then they need to demonstrate that they can actually deliver on those contracts. So ideally, uh, we will create uh, opportunities for Australian industry to do just that. Uh, uh, so I look, I look at the opportunities that Defence provides uh, as, as a really significant and once-in-a-generation um, opportunity. I, I have to tread carefully there because I in no way speak for defence and of course everything that defence does will go through the appropriate processes that ensure that the best capability is delivered for the Australian Defence Force uh, that's possible. But our aim at the agency is to try to leverage that to the fullest extent possible so that Australian industry can benefit and ultimately then the Australian economy. So we will be working closely with defence, we'll be working closely with Australian industry uh, and we will be looking at ways to lift Australian industry out of the startup, uh, the startup uh, um, sector, and, and into something more sustainable. That that leads uh, seamlessly into our final question, which is a, a pointy one, um, which you may not have the answer to. But uh, the question is around. Um, when will there be a contract for supply chain facilitation? I think we're originally looking at that in September, October. Um, hasn't been a lot of news on it since. Are we likely to receive an update soon on when that contract might come out? Uh, look, James, I'm going to I'm going to claim fifth week in the work, uh, uh, fifth week in the job uh, uh, privilege here, and I I don't want to give you false hope on on that. Um, uh, we have several grant processes operating at the moment, all at different stages of approval, and um, uh, how about I get back to you personally with an answer on that one, and, and you can deliver it to the, to the person who asked it, but I, I, I don't want to uh, uh, give um, uh, any false information this morning, so apologies on that. No, totally understandable. Look, Thank would you. you all please join me in uh, thanking Chris for an excellent speech. Thanks for your time. Next up, David Ball, Regional Director at Lockheed Martin Australia Space, will talk about delivering capability in the space domain and building Australian skills. Today's presentation, I'm going to focus on the three issues, the three pillars on this title slide there, looking at the sovereignty, 
the resilience and the schedule assurance that we as industry need to be, be uh, acting on as we implement capabilities for defence. It's so critical. Uh, you go back to the first principles review in 2016 where the industry was set up as a fundamental input to capability. That's something we live every day and we've really got to make sure that we deliver against that responsibility. And it's something at LMA we do take to heart, looking at increasing our resilience and looking at being a capability steward, helping defence think through the issues, understanding what technology we can bring to the table. And it's really a proactive discussion around where capability needs to go and where we can go as a provider. So think about the fundamental requirements here of resilience, sovereignty and schedule assurance. Each of these elements figure in programs in a different way. Some elements have more weighting in different areas, but these three elements are core capabilities in everything the ADF does and everything we as industry needs to do. These elements are things we look at how we position our solutions in Australia, bringing US technology to the Australian capability. And as we think forward to the space programs that previous speakers have spoken about this morning, 9102 being on the table right now, 9360 about to drop on the desk, and DEF 799 a little further down track, these are key capabilities for Australia. Very, very important that we get it right as an industry. And thinking about the three pillars here in sovereignty, we've seen the sovereignty definition in 9102 about Australian ownership, management and control of our own space assets. As we saw this morning from Phil Gordon's presentation, that takes us a long way from where we are today with the existing capabilities. But it's more than that. It's more than just the satellites and the grand infrastructure. We've got to build that national, national infrastructure as well as the workforce to go with that. I look around the room and think, okay, where's the next generation of folks in the space industry coming from? And that's something we need to, need to think through. Resilience. The previous speakers have already spoken about the congested and contested environment. We didn't collude on slides beforehand, but that's part of the things we're going to talk about today. I spoke about resilience a lot last year at this conference. It's got no better. We've seen the ASAT issue last week, uh, but we've got to focus on making sure that we put capability in space that enables our warfighters to manage our assets and those assets are survivable in times of conflict. It's about getting major space acquisitions right rather than just getting them done. And there's quite a distinction there that we need to focus on. We've got to really ensure that we put infrastructure that is truly military grade behind all these capabilities. And lastly, thinking about schedule. This is clearly at the forefront of the Defence Minister's considerations. We've seen Minister Dutton be very clear on his requirements on the department and therefore on industry to deliver well and deliver on time and deliver on budget. There is a change in strategic circumstances. We've heard government talk about this a lot over the last few months. This then com compresses the time available to deliver capability, creates that sense of urgency. We've got to be careful that we don't just deliver on time but we deliver the right capability. We've already talked about strategic context this morning a little bit. The previous speakers have done that. But want to ensure that all those three pillars I spoke about, the sovereignty, the resilience and the schedule assurance, all tie back to this strategy, strategic context. You know, we see our adversaries with new potent military capabilities in this region and globally. We see a change in the strategic environment. We see competition being increasingly prominent in the regional dynamics. Think about the Prime Minister's quote there on the slide. 
It's the most consequential strategic realignment since World War II in this region. And let that sink in for a bit. So we've seen the, up, the upshot here is that it's a more competitive environment for us, more challenging, more challenging on industry to provide the right solutions. The capability of adversaries is growing. Traditional sources of assurance are diminishing at the same time. The FSP saw defence translate these requirements into a new set of strategic objectives, such as self-reliance, the geographic focus on this region, sovereign industrial capability, durability and resilience, not just in execution, but also in sustainment. And all of this can be seen as you start to see the documentation and the framing around defence's major acquisitions that are coming up. Well, digging a little further on each of these areas, so sovereignty, this lies at the heart of the government's defence space ambitions, being able to row our own boat and be able to run our own race on these, on these capabilities. It's really critical that we get this right. Um, so several key considerations here. I've talked a little about the new strategic circumstances. There's a risk of over-reliance on international agreements. Australia needs to stand on its own and we will do that under 9102 and the other capabilities that are coming down the, coming down the road. And secondly, the, the role of space that plays in our daily lives, we talked about this in some of the earlier presentations, but the public is unaware of how much they rely on space daily. Defence is fully reliant on space for all that they do. We look at the, the rich intelligence surveillance reconnaissance requirements with the new platforms being deployed, the communications load that then imposes, the need to take data back, process it, and then push it back forward to the, to the command. It's pretty, pretty critical where the digital data and information are driving our solutions. And thirdly, looking at space capability, no longer being really a space domain, excuse me, being no longer a support capability. We hear this now be regarded as an operational domain. So it's very important that we take that integrated view of that domain as we start to deploy capability for, for defence. So from the Lockheed Martin perspective, sovereignty is at the heart of everything we do, particularly in space, thinking about the way we deliver programs and capabilities in country, and we're at a really critical interface. We've got a great alliance with the United States on the defence and political level. Our parent organisation enables us to access the latest and greatest of that US technology, bring that to Australia, upskilling the Australian workforce, increasing our reliance on current and local capabilities. Lockheed's built the, the primary most protected US satellites over the last few years, including satellites such as Milstar, MUOS UHF satellite, and the advanced EHF constellation of satellites. We really need to leverage that heritage and background as we start to deliver capability for defence. We've talked about Australian ownership, management and control, and that operational superiority. We've got to bring that capacity, connectivity and resilience to the fight. Think about some of the other things on that slide. I like to call out the space domain awareness piece. Uh, we work closely with Australian industry in development of that capability, notably with Curtin University of Western Australia, where we're bringing a cost-effective space domain awareness sensor to the market. This can be a disaggregated sensor. We can deploy them right across Australia to give you that disaggregated uh, sensor network to provide true pictures of what's going on in space from a wide field of view sensor. We work closely with our in-country research laboratory, Stellar Lab out of Melbourne, to advance the image processing on the back end of that to detect smaller and smaller objects 
at longer and longer distances in the orbit. So we really can see all orbital regimes. And sovereignty doesn't just stop at the ownership, management and control of assets. We see government focus clearly on supply chain and supply chain in country. And it's around that durability and sovereignty of those supply chains. And on the board there is some of the folks we've announced that we're working with on 9102. I never thought I'd say the word punks from a podium in my career, but there I've said it now, so it's all done. Uh, but meaningful AIC is critical. We can't pay lip service to AIC anymore. It's not a matter of painting rocks and polishing roads. It's a serious capability in country to sustain operations. So it's bringing technology to country, leveraging what is here already, upscaling that to meet the requirement. So it's looking at the best of the Australian space industry and the best of small and medium enterprises, some of the names on that, on that chart there. So we're making more announcements on that in the coming weeks. One thing I wanted to call out today, we've talked about supply chain sovereignty. There's another issue in terms of sovereignty, and that's workforce development. And that's something that's near and dear to my heart. That's why I put all those years in with the SIAA that James talked about, is how we take this conversation to the next generation and how we upskill the, the space industry particularly. It's critical that we have this massive trained personnel to meet the uh, Australian Space Agency's targets that, that Chris talked about earlier. That's not a trivial number to get to. And we've got to look at the upstream capabilities for launch, spacecraft manufacturers, manufacturing as much as we do for the downstream capabilities in data acquisition, data applications, and uh, prosecuting the data that you get back from surveillance assets. So one of these things that we've engaged with is a company called STEMPunks, which is a, an Australian organisation at the juncture between education and industry. Working together with them, we're going to develop a 10-year curriculum ranging from high school through university to early careers development to bring folks through that, that chain of development, not just in tertiary but also in vocational training. Uh, for us it's going to be really interesting to see that roll out. It's going to be a multitude of schools. We'll have this embedded in them in the near future. And about a quarter of those will be deliberately addressing regional and indigenous communities to make sure that we are fully addressing all needs across the nation. I talked a little about schedule assurance and schedule pressures with the strategic environment. Clearly 9102 is no exception in that regard. This deterioration of strategic circumstances and the challenges that 9102 has that are unique to the space environment really puts the effort back on the industry to deliver and deliver on time. The extant elements in the ADF are, are expiring in time and they're approaching their end of life. We talked about some of that this morning. Optus C1 already being inclined, Intelsat 22 will reach its end of station kept life later this decade, the WGS arrangements and so forth. So that places an imperative on the project offices and in turn industry to deliver that increased capability. The other issue with space, and it's a fairly unique one to the space domain, is the orbital filings. Just because Australia has filed for orbital filings for our defence requirements doesn't give us advanced seat on the bus. We've got to still go through the same process that the commercial satellite industry does in their frequency bands to secure those filings. That, that means that Defence has to place assets in those locations to bring those frequencies into use and then notify those frequencies to the ITU. If that doesn't happen, the 70 o'clock runs out and the next, next person on the bus can, can trump us. So that's a really critical issue. We need to protect the filings and the frequencies we've got as well as uh, bringing the new frequencies into use. And lastly, I talked about this earlier, the increased demand on bandwidth. 
defences in slowing down rolling out the new air platforms, land platforms and maritime platforms which require more and more data and more and more connectivity. It's really important that we deliver that SATCOM bandwidth to address that evolving capability because the, the user appetite for bandwidth is not going south. And thinking about that schedule issue, how do we address that as an industry? Things we're doing is looking at the use of digital twins, model-based systems engineering. Uh, I had Shoal Group on the previous slide. We've engaged Shoal Group to actually do some of that work now around our model-based systems engineering work. Great Australian SME doing some fantastic work for us. Software development, we're working closely with Cluebox Solutions to have them do the pre-work to integrate our ground environment technology with their networks that they run in their, in, their, in their company to make sure we can de-risk any execution on the control side. And leveraging commonality. I talked earlier about our heritage around MUOS and AEHF, leveraging that commonality of product into this new technology, into the 9102 capabilities. And thirdly, looking at where technology needs to be updated, investing early, we're investing now to make those advancements in technology to enable us to execute well on 9102. Lastly, on resilience, uh, I started out on this conversation. Uh, last year, I spent the whole presentation talking about this issue and went into a lot of, lot of depth. It's something that the parent Lockheed Martin Corporation in the US does a tremendous amount with the US government day, to, day in, day out around the counter space threat environment and where we need to go. Unfortunately, since the last time I presented on this 12 months ago, it's got worse. We saw the ASAT attack. We've seen other countries do hypersonic strike vehicles, strike weapons from space. We've seen re remote proximity operations vehicles by several nations. They're great for refueling and repairing spacecraft, but they can also be used for other things. So we need to be cognizant of what's going on in space, who's parked next to us, and why are they there and what are they doing. And we see a lot of that activity around the work that we do. So as a, as a prime contract of the US government, we see a tremendous amount of insight into these issues. Uh, we're well placed to advise on those matters at a classified and unclassified level. And it's really thinking back how that environment translates back to Australia's unique circumstances. In some, in some circumstances, we're not actually unique at all. We deal in the same space domain that the US plays in that our adversaries play in. So we're all in the one swimming pool in space which, as we saw, is getting increasingly crowded and congested. So we all need to understand and behave well. So the sense of urgency on 9102 is something we think about all the time. It gives us the, pre the pressures end up pushing you towards the lowest solution or the lowest technical risk solution in the fastest time. But we need to step back and make sure we are delivering the right solution that will be robust in a time of conflict, that we don't have something that disappears on day one. So that adversarial issue in space has to be taken into account. Ladies and gents, I'll finish there, but thank you for your time. There really has never been more of a critical time in Australia with building our national space capabilities, especially around defence and defence's imperatives. It's a challenging set of circumstances we all face, and we look forward to getting that balance right between sovereignty, resilience and schedule assurance. Thank you. And now, Glenn Tyndall, CEO for Communication Systems at EOS, will talk about the company and their new system for inter-satellite communications that uses medium Earth orbit satellites. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, 
So there's been some really great speakers this morning talking about the needs of defence and the changing space environment. Um, I just wanted to bring you guys up to date a bit on what we're doing here at, at EOS. So I'm going to talk a little bit about a satellite constellation we're busy building at the moment and why it's applicable to uh, not only defence but the wider space economy. So one slide on EOS. So um, EOS is a bit of a black box. So when I joined the company 18 months ago, I went trying to find something about it and it's very hard to figure out what the hell EOS does. But uh, I'll tell you, I'll, he, here's my interpretation after after a year and a half at the company. So it's basically an R&D machine. Um, so EOS has been, been around for about 35 years um, and the core competencies, competencies are in sort of laser physics and beam directors doing things with lasers in space is really where all this sort of came from. Um, so what do we use that technology for? We use it for things such as space domain awareness. So EOS has been in this business for something like 30 years now. Uh, we have an existing system which uh, we supply services to the Australian and uh, US government. Um, we also use that same laser technology for doing things on the ground. Uh, laser communications, um, uh, directing weapon, uh, weapons on targets, things like that. Uh, and more recently we've just moved into the space domain. A um, couple of other things about this company. It's, um, so it's, it's much remarked that, this, that the Australian defence industry is an hourglass. So there's a whole bunch of SMEs at the bottom, there's the big, uh, largely foreign primes at the top, and there's sort of nothing in the middle. So EOS is one of those companies, one of the very few that's sort of in the middle, and we're attempting to transition from an SME up towards sort of, uh, you know, more of a prime status. Now, we're certainly very far from a prime. We're not 100,000 people and 50 billion of revenue, um, much smaller than that. Um, but what we're doing is we're busy changing the culture at the moment to move from uh, a very fast-moving SME towards something of, with, a, with, with a better governance and a more mature approach to, to government. Um, how are we going on that pathway? Well, so these are the numbers today. So about 500-odd employees. Um, when you roll back to 2017, we had, a, we had less than 100. Um, we're on about 200-odd million a year at the moment. We had about 20 million a year back then. So, so in the last, since 2017, which is what, four years, um, we've gone up six times in um, body count and eight times in revenue, right? Now, the investors will all cry at this point because I'll go, where's the dividend? So what's happening is the earnings that drop to the bottom line are being reinvested back into the business. Uh, you'll see a lot of companies uh, talk about they have 5% of revenues go back into R&D. We, we spend north of 15% on R&D. Right, so that, that's what's fueling the growth of this business, as well as we're needing to suck in additional capital, which makes the investors ha sad sometimes. Um, but that, that's sort of where the business is at at the moment. Um, the, the other notable thing about EOS is that you don't hear a lot about it in Australia, but actually we're about 90% exports. Um, or, you know, while, while the ADF is certainly our premier uh, customer, we, we actually have a whole bunch of uh, overseas customers uh, for our various product lines. Anyway, so I'll talk a little bit next about what we're doing with Spacelink. So uh, Spacelink is a satellite constellation which is under construction now. Uh, it's wholly owned by EOS. So this is, an, even though this constellation has an American flag on it because it operates under US filings, it's actually wholly owned um, a, a, a by, by EOS here in Australia. Um, the rationale for the Spacelink business is all these little, there's lots of little satellites in LEO whizzing around. It's very hard for them to communicate to the Earth continuously, or basically impossible. Um, when they fly over the ocean, they can't see any land. How do they get their traffic back to ground, for example? Um, what we're going to be doing is building a network of satellites that sit above them and provide a communications relay product uh, for them. Uh, so 
in the last 12 months, we've stood up an organisation in the US, which has today got about 30 employees. Um, and in, in a year, we completed the design, uh, satisfied all the regulatory requirements, and we're now bending metal on the, on the first satellites. So I'll talk you through the, the rest of it. So just here's a few names. Um, the space industry is sort of small, so you might see a few of the folks there. So our CEO we've got running that business, Dave Bettinger, he was one of the founders of iDirect, one of the founders of OneWeb. Uh, very strong track record in turning ideas into businesses. Uh, Tony Colucci, in my view, is the single best satellite sales guy in the world. Uh, uh, well, he's, he's sold a few over here, actually, so as, as, as you may know. And uh, a few other folks there, very strong track records. Uh, Rob Singh uh, came from Maxar, he, he, very strong um, uh, technical background, and he was uh, either CTO or deputy CTO at Maxar, uh, and a few other folks there. Larry Rubin, uh, he's had 30 years building satellites. So we've got an extremely strong team, and this has resonated very strongly with the investors we're talking to. Why are there so many Leos? What's going on? Where's it coming from? Uh, in our view, it, it's happening just because launch costs are dropping. It used to be, you know, you, you had to pay for a, your own ride to orbit and it was very expensive, which meant you had to be a government pretty much to be able to do it. Today, with ride share and, and other resources available, it's, it's sort of relatively easy to get into space. I mean, universities can do it, right? So, so that's generated this proliferation of Leo satellites. Um, also, you know, just COTS hardware is getting more reliable and, and, and ever cheaper. So these sort of, it, it's now like a million dollar satellite is just sort of not a big deal anymore, whereas once upon a time there was no such thing as a million dollar satellite. Um, the LEO orbit's very important, even though it, we, we've heard all the concerns about being very congested and so forth, but there's a whole bunch of new space players coming in there. So the, the list of companies there do all sorts of different things, but at first order of magnitude, they're taking pictures or imagery or, lay, or radar imagery or something of Earth, and that's why they need to be close to the Earth. There's also a few others doing a couple of other things there relating to human spaceflight, which is a thing now. Um, so here's the problem with the LEOs, I alluded to it earlier. So if, you're, if you've got a LEO satellite, it's busy clocking around the Earth, it goes around every 90 minutes. Most of that time it's, it's over water, or because the Earth's 70%, Earth's surface 70% water, or you're over another country, you know, or you're just nowhere near a ground station. So, so typically of the hour and a half that these things are clocking around the Earth, you might get a few minutes, six to 10 minutes, once every hour and a half and you can dump your data. If you're really lucky, you might get down twice per orbit or you might not get down for several orbits. So, uh, so what that means is they're in dial-up time. So you remember when we used to leave the office and we'd, uh, your boss would ring you and say, did you get that email? And, and you'd go, what, wait, wait, wait till I get home and I'll log on and I'll get that email. Right, they're still in that sort of phase. And now of course there's all these new applications that have appeared because we're on all the time with broadband. Um, so the poor old Leo guys are still in that space. Um, the second issue they've got is spectrum. Um, everybody wants to move more and more data around but really there's no more spectrum to be had and it's getting increasingly difficult as, as well as it, it represents a vulnerability that could be exploited by an adversary. And the third piece is where does that data land? So let's say you've got an Earth observation satellite, it takes a nice picture, you want to see the picture, it drops it down in some country, not your country, and then you've got to get it back to Russell or the Pentagon or wherever the hell it is. Um, you know, it, probably it's going to travel through someone's submarine cable. Now, normally you would try to choose one that isn't owned by a Russian oligarch or a Chinese hedge fund, but you know, you sort of don't get to choose to a certain extent when you're, depending where you land. So, you know, whereas we, when we talk to the intelligence community and defence users, they really value the idea that data from their asset can land straight back to their country without having to go through anybody's network in between. 
So we can, we can solve all these problems. Um, so what we, what we do is we build a, a small constellation, a handful of satellites sitting in the MEO orbit. So they're sitting up above the LEOs. So if you're a LEO satellite, typically you've got the sensor on the bottom of the satellite that's looking down at the Earth, taking its happy snaps or whatever it's doing. And on the top of the satellite, you have a communications terminal that sends the data up to one of our satellites. And there's always one of them in view. We can show you the geometry. There's always one in view. And then we relay that back down to Earth. So that gives you continuous connectivity whenever you want it. Um, we're also not using RF for that communications link. We're using laser communications. And why, laser communications are better for numerous reasons. First of all, bandwidth. Second, licensing. And, th and third, very hard to uh, intercept or jam. So uh, much higher resiliency. Uh, and the third piece I mentioned before, you, you, you get your data where you want it, not in someone else's country. So that, that's what a conventional Earth, a low Earth orbit satellite looks like. This is sort of to scale. So you can see it going round and round. It'll go green when it goes over the ground station, the one in Norway, and it spits out its data. So it's not, it's not that often, right? So, and, you know, so that means that if, um, if, you're, if you're the military and you're trying to do precision fires, you know, you're looking at a picture that might be an hour old, right? So that's not very useful. Um, or there might be a real-time incident occurring or even a bushfire. Take a photo of a bushfire, in an hour's time the thing's moved on. So, uh, you know, so we see that as being sort of not really uh, the modern way of doing things. Um, next picture, thanks. So this is what our MEO constellation looks like. See, the blue ring is the orbit in MEO, and you see four satellites there, and the green lines are the laser beams, um, well, the communication links, I should say, moving between the same LEO satellite, and you see it relaying back to some place in the United States. So it's just available all the time. Yeah. And from those four satellites we're showing, the four MEO satellites there, they can see every satellite in LEO all the time. Well, every LEO can see one or more of those satellites all the time. So I'll talk about the system architecture, because I'm an engineer. So we've got a few bits of the architecture. So there's the constellation of satellites and the space segment. The space segments are uh, a series of, it's a group of four satellites. We only need three, actually, to do coverage all the time, but we're launching four, so we have four for three redundancy. Uh, the satellites we're building are not small satellites. They're not CubeSats. They're, they're between 500 and, and 1,000 kilos. So they're, they're quite substantial sort of things and not something you'd knock up in, a, in, a, in, in your bedroom. Um, in terms of the ground segment, uh, we, we have a number of sites uh, around, the, uh, around the world. Um, given that our primary customer base, we believe, are government agencies in, in, in the Five Eyes Nations, we're putting the first couple of gateways in the US, and uh, we'll be building one in Australia as well. Uh, user terminals. So it should come as no surprise to us that uh, LEO satellites don't automatically know how to communicate with our, our network. So what has to happen prior to a LEO satellite being launched, we have to integrate an, an optical terminal onto their, onto their, onto their spacecraft. Right? So once they've got that there, that thing then knows how to speak to our, our network and can find that communication service. Now, wait a minute, you say, but what all the satellites up there today can't communicate. Quite correct. Um, but the reality is satellites in LEO typically last three to five years. Um, uh, and, and, and more importantly, the really good ones the, the ones doing high-grade EO missions or hyperspectral missions, they're, they're at the lower orbits. They're the, they're the ones that get replaced more often. They're the ones that need to move more data. So in a sense, the high-value customers have a continual pipeline of satellites that are coming through their factory that are being launched. And so we get multiple opportunities, continuous opportunities, to keep integrating our terminals on so, so we'll have customers on orbit. And we've got a network control segment to make it all work. So that, that's basically the architecture. 
uh, spacecraft. So uh, we're, we're actually bending metal today. So uh, we conducted, uh, in, the, in the last 12 months, we completed a design. We uh, went, went out and did RFTs and things like that. Uh, did a BAFO round and we ultimately awarded to a company called OHB, uh, based out of Bremen in Germany. Um, they're not a household name necessarily, but um, they are actually the company that has been building the European Galileo satellite. So they've built 34 Galileo satellites, uh, which is similar to the GPS uh, spacecraft. Um, they, so what was very attractive to them, uh, to, to us about them, was that uh, uh, you know, they have a spacecraft that is uh, a lot of flight heritage in the medium Earth orbit. And the, the reason that's important is Different orbits in space have different radiation and other environments. So the medium Earth orbit is characterised by having um, it's, it's, a, it's a horrible radiation environment. And so we needed a spacecraft that was well qualified for, for that environment. Um, so as I said, they've got a very, very long uh, heritage uh, there. Um, so they're actually bending metal at the moment. So um, we have uh, th their teams on, on it. We're on a 30 month uh, contract with them. So also quite timely. So yeah, they started in September. Um, so the, the diagram on the right is a bit of an artist's impression, but it, but it gives you the, the, the main pieces. So there's a bus and wings, we all know that. Um, there's a bunch of optical heads that, fate, that, fate, that look down, and those optical heads are all independently steerable. So optical head, it's like an eyeball with a laser beam in it, right? So we can steer the thing around to point wherever you want it to go. And, and, and on the LEO satellite, there's another eyeball with a, with a laser beam in it, and they can, they can find each other and communicate. We also have an RF capability. Uh, the RF capability is there for two reasons. Uh, the first is that um, today NASA operates a system called TDRS, which is a very sexy name. It's the Telemetry Data Relay Satellite Service. And so that, they use that for things like when they launch a rocket, it's got to whiz around the Earth and it's hard to keep communication with, so they use TDRS for that. They use it for communicating with the International Space Station and a few other things. But um, in 2018, uh, the then US President uh, wrote to NASA and said, stop doing that. Um, when I'm not giving you any more money for that thing because it costs them about 250 million a year to run that, uh, that constellation and they get about a gigabit out of it. So it's not, not that hot a service, right? Uh, so by contrast, uh, we, we'll, we'll have about 160 gigabits uh, available for sale, right? And, and, and we'll be costing a lot less than that. So, uh, and this is very, very akin to the US government's stance, say, with launch, where they said to, to NASA, stop doing that launch stuff. Stop doing it. I want you to stop it now. I want you to give it, this stuff to people like SpaceX and so forth. And, and having blazed a pathway, we now want uh, commercial industry to take over that, that function. So the same is happening in space data relay. Um, yes, yeah, so, so those RF terminals can communicate with the legacy um, uh, the legacy TDRS system. We, we have the same frequency bands on board. Um, and we also use RF from the MEO spacecraft down to the gateways. Um, we do have the capability of using laser from laser communications from the spacecraft down to the gateways, but then you run into clouds and things, right? And so we think it is not sufficiently proven yet, and, we get, uh, and so we, our, our primary, mo uh, primary motivator is to use uh, RF for space to ground and optical for, um, you know, as a development item. One of the, one of the reasons, um, so, so we, how, did we, how did we get here? So where we got here was, uh, there was a predecessor company that was started to do this. Uh, it was a company called Odyssey. They filed through the US administration in 2016 and received 21 gigahertz of spectrum allocation. Biggest uh, spectrum allocation ever given to a, uh, a commercial, uh, commercial satellite operator. 
Um, but, but, you know, it was a Silicon Valley company. It was full of young guys with ponytails who liked drinking expensive beer and hanging out in bars with each other. But they didn't know how to sell anything, so they went broke, right? So then the FCC was sad. The FCC said, oh, my God, you know, all this, the clock's ticking on this spectrum. It's going to go to whoever's next in line, probably someone not in the US. Um, and what are we going to do about this? So then along came EOS and said, we know what we'll do about it. Um, so uh, we, we acquired the spectrum rights uh, through, through a bankruptcy process, and uh, we, now, we are now the holder of those rights. Now, as a foreign, foreign entity, we had to go through a process called CFIUS, which is like FERB in, in the US. So the, and the, the US government assisted us to go through that process because they were very supportive of our application. Uh, so, so anyway, long story short, we've got this huge bunch of spectrum, which is very useful for doing the space-to-ground bit that I talked about before, as well as we've got a whole bunch of other spectrum for doing space-to-space -space communications. So we, had, we don't have a spectrum problem. So I talked about the terminals that get bolted onto the um, uh, LEO satellites before they launch. Um, so most of these LEO satellites we're talking about look like a washing machine, right? You know, they're not that big. So um, one of the initial problems was we were thinking, let's go RF first. So if you look to the right of the screen, that's what an RF terminal looks like that does 100 megabits. It, it's like this big and it weighs 25 kilograms. So you can't put a 25 kilogram antenna on top of something that's you know, 100 kilos because as the thing moves, they both go like this, right? So you, and you, you end up with all sorts of problems. Um, so we, we quickly came to the view that RF was going to be very limiting in terms of the bandwidth and also the addressable market. So if your satellite weighs six tonnes, fine, you can put your 25 kilo antenna on top of it. If your spacecraft is only 100 kilos, which is what most of the little ones are like, you've got to have a light terminal. So then we started thinking about uh, optical systems, optical terminals. Now, if you look towards the middle of the screen, you'll see, an, so to get a hundred, sorry, to the left of the screen, a 100 megabit optical terminal weighs about two kilos, right? So you get like 10 to one performance from moving from RF to optical, plus, plus you don't have interference, plus you don't have spectrum issues, plus, 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 right? So there's a whole bunch of reasons why we think moving to optical um, uh, is very beneficial. Um, so the FCC, the regulators love this too, right? Because their job all day is to, is to break up fights between people who all want the same spectrum. So here we are saying we, we don't need that spectrum as much. We're going to move to optical where it's more or less unlimited at this stage. So they see that as um, uh, very beneficial in terms of effective use of spectrum and other scarce resources. Um, terminals. So when you have terminals talking to each other, they have to speak the same language, right? So uh, over the, there's been a lot of work done uh, both in Europe and in the US over the last sort of 20 years in terms of laser-based terminals. Um, but all the standards are different. So it's, it's, it's not even VHS, VHS versus beta. There's a whole bunch of other things in there as well. Uh, one of the great developments recently happened is the US uh, Space Development Agency said, you know, we're going to have a standard. So they wrote a standard, and it's not a perfect standard, but it's a standard and a whole bunch of uh, vendors have jumped on board. So today, we've got a choice of about a dozen different vendors that manufacture different types of optical heads. So we've got big ones, little ones, ones that, can do, ones that can do long distance, ones that can do short distance. So we don't have to invent that stuff. We can go out and buy the Lego block that we need and stick it on to our other Lego blocks and, and build up a system. Uh, so uh, the, the two uh, vendors that we've selected for our initial constellation is Minaric and Blue Marble. Blue Marble is a little company out of San Diego that make very special terminals and they are, let's say, very close to uh, special parts of US government. Minaric is a German company which is recently relisted in the US and these guys are all uh, providing services to SDA as well. So um, really great technology and um, I, 
dare I say it, thank you, government, and thank you, government agency, for creating a standard that is that is making all this happen. Market opportunity. So why are we doing this? Um, so um, moving bandwidth around. So if you look at it, so I come from a satellite operator background. We've been selling bandwidth all over the place. So. Bandwidth has different prices for different applications. If you're moving around Facebook and YouTube and whatever, it's not really worth that much, or IoT, it's really hard to charge a lot to move that data around. However, if the data is, let's say, imagery used for a government application, it's very high value. If that data is an hour old, it's less value. If that data is real time, it's more value. So the highest, the, the highest value customer base are folks that have really important data they need to move, it, it, they need to move a lot of it and they need to move it quickly. And you know, that's another way of saying it's the government. Now when I talk about our primary use cases being bringing imagery, radar images, you know, hyperspectral images, whatever it is, from space to ground, in three quarters of the time it's a government agency paying for that at the end of it. There are commercial players out there, and here's a whole list of them, Black Sky, ISI, Capella, all these guys, they're commercial organisations, but at the end of the day, it's a government user at the end of that, uh, end of that uh, value chain. Right? And uh, w when we talk to companies, some of the ones I've mentioned, they tell us that a picture, they can get 10 times what they, uh, the, the price from, the, from, their, from their customer for a picture that's real time versus one that's an hour or so old. So, so huge uplifting value for them. So if you're, I'll pick one, Hawkeye, you've gone and spent X million dollars to build your satellite, all of a sudden you can get a hell of a lot more value out of that satellite. It didn't cost you any more to build or operate, but now every image you take is worth more because it's real time and you can get them off the satellite. So if you, one of the other problems the satellite operators have is their satellites flying around the earth taking lots of pictures, they have to choose which ones to offload. They, they can't even get all their data off the satellite. Um, so if you have a hyperspectral uh, uh, sensor, it generates this huge data cube and they can't get it off the satellite. So they can't generate as much revenue as they want. Now they've got high bandwidth on all the time, they can pull more data off it. So it really improves their business case. And that's why we say this is sort of fundamental infrastructure for improving the ecosystem. And you can think, it about, you can think about it a little bit like, remember before broadband, couldn't conceive of all these things. And now, you know, iPhone, there's all these things that couldn't exist without broadband. All these applications only appeared because we had high bandwidth, relatively cheap, on all the time bandwidth. So we believe the same thing's gonna happen in space, and this is gonna be an enabling uh, infrastructure that's gonna push all this stuff along. All right, so, so our first route to, to market is what we call the commercial to government market. So all of those sort of companies there we're in conversation with, shall we say. Um, the second path is direct to government. Now, we don't expect government, uh, governments to take taxpayers' money and give us a cheque just yet because we're not proven. But we, we believe that they will come on next and that probably will ultimately be a, a, you know, a quite significant market for us. Um, I'll just say, it, there's a whole bunch of names here on the government side, we've got conversations with all of those and uh, very healthy conversations. A little thing at the bottom of the screen there about, um, this is for the, this is, I stole this from our investor deck. Um, the stuff that everyone, everyone goes, well wait a minute, isn't Elon Musk doing this? You know, isn't uh, Jeff Bezos doing this? Uh, uh, isn't he just gonna eat your lunch? But the reality is they're doing a different thing, right? They're doing ground Leo ground for, for, for consumer, right? Now, could they stick laser terminals on? Could they provide a relay service? Yeah, they could. But that means every one of their satellites is now a hell of a lot more expensive, it's a lot more complex, and they're destroying their own value proposition of a low-cost service. So we don't, we don't actually perceive there's a risk there at this stage, though I might be wrong and you'll come along and buy us. 
Um, so what are these markets we talked about? So I talked about uh, Earth's observation. That's really the biggest and simplest one to think about. Um, that, that's, um, and, you know, that, that's where our initial thinking was. That's where all the customers are going to be. Um, human spaceflights turned out to be a thing. Right, so I was down in Houston last week and uh, we were talking to a company down there and um, seriously, if, when you put people in space, you can't have dial-up anymore. You need high bandwidth on all the time, reliable communication services, right? And their business cases don't fly. If you're building your own space station and you're gonna bring you know, scientists up there to do experimental stuff, you can't tell them they can't get their data off. You know, you have to have it. So that becomes an enabling part of them and, and, and you know, we're, we're working very closely with um, a particular name there. Um, On-orbit servicing, um, we see that as a market that's also growing and there's some great companies doing some amazing things there. Again, it's pretty hard to do if you can only talk to your spacecraft every now and again. If you need to be able to talk to it all the time, really, to, to do these type of activities. Um, on the government side, um, we, I, I, look, I won't talk a lot about this. We, we, so what I'll say is I've talked about the base use case for, the, for this constellation. Um, we have also added on features which are uh, really of only interest to government users. So that, that's for a different conversation. But, but um, we have uh, quite uh, a lot of uh, interest from the, uh, particularly the US uh, intelligence community about what we could do for them. So I'll save that one for another day. Uh, pipeline. So who's going to pay for all this? So, um, so th this program's about 700 million US. Uh, it's about 950 Aussie million Aussie dollars. So when we, so EOS isn't funding this ourselves. So um, we're we're about half a billion. So we can't afford to pay for this ourselves. We we we're having to do this with other people's money. Um, so when, we, when you go looking for other people's money, they say, who's going to pay me back? Where are the customers? So we've got about 200 customers in the pipeline. We're actively working about the top 50. Um, and you know, our risk weighted, we've already got a couple of hundred million dollars uh, we, we believe we'll have in line by 2025. Um, we've been awarded our first contract from a, uh, an organisation called CASIS. That's sort of part of NASA that runs the International Space Station. Um, so we will be, one of our terminals is already booked to go to the International Space Station to do a demo service and then we believe, uh, without a contract yet, we believe it will transition to a commercial service. Um, I talked about how NASA's busy um, putting the, putting, uh, uh, the TDRA system to the sword. Um, so they, you know, obviously they need to replace that, so they're running a program called CSP, uh, which is uh, uh, essentially a competition to figure out who's going to replace it. So we're one of the respondents there and uh, we're expecting, uh, we, well, we, we believe we, we were likely to get an award um, either in December or January uh, going forward. We're also in uh, co-engineering work with uh, a constellation owner who operates a bunch of Earth observation satellites, so we're doing technical interchange meetings with them at the moment, and basically all the engineers are getting in a room and figuring out how to stick all the bits together and for their next, for their next block of satellites. Um, so we're well on the track to getting our, uh, our uh, sales pipeline converting to contracts, which means that the investors then hop on board. Um, on the investor side, we've got a, uh, we should be closing our first round uh, in the next few days, I uh, hope, so we're just waiting on investment committees and things to uh, finalise some documents. Yeah, so next step, so this is slightly out of date, but um, so the design's completed, the satellite's right, we're actually bending metal at the moment, uh, the, the German engineers are doing German engineering, putting things together, uh, and we have, a, we have a regulatory deadline in 2024 we need to meet, um, and so we are still on track to meet that regulatory deadline. Um, prior to the, and in between the, in between the build and the launch, uh, well I should say along with the build we've got other financing work to do. So as we 
as we de-risk the program because we're hitting milestones in terms of um, uh, how, how the metal's being bent, um, in terms of how the customers, uh, firm contracts are building up, we'll be adding additional financing uh, tranches in order and, and, and progressively burning the risk down and bringing the value up. Uh, and so at the end of that process, our intention is that EOS will hold something north of 50% of the ownership of this thing. And um, so we will have uh, full control here in Australia, although the, the, the US corporation is fully FOCO mitigated as it needs to be in order to sell to US government. And that's it. How do I do for time? <laughs> Well, look, that's the first time I've seen that presentation and it's a very complex and forward-looking vision that's coming together, I think, quite nicely. Mm. A lot of questions. Um, I'm going to hit a few of them in a row, uh, conscious that we're a little bit over time. We've got lunch waiting for us. Um, given that 20% of your client base is going to be defence or government-related, how are you protecting the resilience of this network? How, how are you thinking about jamming attempts against your yep. satellites? Yeah, so it's, it's more like uh, we, we actually think 75 to 80 percent of, of, of the uh, customer, of, the, of both the revenues and, and the uh, data traffic, the traffic, if you like, will be government related. So, um, so from the get-go, um, you know, as I sort of said, if, if you're a, um, a, a, let's say you're a US government agency and you want to collect data from one place and bring it to another place, you can't shove it through anyone's network. You can't go through a cable system that's owned by a Chinese hedge fund, right? Simple example. So what they do is they actually have a way to certify networks for carriage of classified data. So the NSA runs a program called Commercial Solutions for Classified in which they, are, they accredit organisations to audit and, and approve such networks for carrying traffic. So we went from, from as distinct from the, the mega Leos like, um, uh, like Starlink and, and, and other, other programs, from the get-go, we knew we wanted government customers as our, as our anchors. And so we knew they had this requirement. So we've designed from the ground up that this will be certifiable uh, for, uh, uh, for, for government use. So that's, that's the sort of regulatory side of it. Um, it. With regard to resilience, so um, we're operating in the MEO orbit. The MEO orbit has very distinct characteristics versus LEO. In LEO, as you know, it's not particularly a safe place to be at the moment, right? We, have to, we only have to look at the news the last couple of weeks why that's the case. The geo orbit has similar challenges. So one of the concerns of the geo orbit is uh, co-orbital attack, right? There's already a bunch of things up there which um, are problematic if you're worried about resilience. But the MEO orbit, by contrast, is sort of empty, right? So the MEO orbit, there's not a lot there. What it's got there is, is a few GPS satellites and a few other bits and pieces, uh, O3B's constellation. But it's pretty much empty space. Um, so while it would be feasible to do a ground-based attack there, you've got an attribution problem if you're the bad guy. Right? And also you have the opportunity to do something about it. So um, this, this is well understood in certain military circles that the, 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 the MIA orbit is the right orbit in terms of resiliency. So if that answers your question. That's really helpful. Thank you. Um, can you comment a little bit on the journey uh, in terms of moving to the US to do this project, setting yeah. up the US company? What, you know, what others in the room can take out of that experience? Yep. What decision makers can take out of that experience? Yeah, so this is going to eat into lunch because this is a bit of a long story. Is that okay? So, <laughs> so, so how hungry are you all? Little, little bit. Maybe we do the short version. Well, so the short version is we had to do it in the US because it's US government customer base, right? So where's the money? The customers of the US, the US government. All satellites, like ships, have a flag on them, and this flag's a US flag, 
right? So there was no way out of that. So what we did was we stood up a Delaware company. Um, it, uh, we, ha we have an SSA structure in place which gives uh, us ownership but, but an element of control on the US side um, and we have uh, only employ US citizens and we and need to be fully FOCO mitigated. So this is a pathway we had to tread. Um, however, the intellectual property is still here, right? The control is still here, the ownership is still here. Um, do you see the Australian Defence Force as a potential customer? Have you had any conversations with them about how you might augment JP ninety one or two? Well, that'd be kissing and telling. But um, so 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 uh, so we we in my dreams I see the ADF as a customer, and we think this adds a couple of different things. I've mentioned a few different pieces there. First is that you know resiliency comes by having different options. There are pace type uh, you know methodology there, right? So this could be part of such a thing. There's all the ADF is looking at having its own Leo assets, right? How are you going to communicate with them? Right, you know, so there's a whole, and also we have a few special features in there which are only available to certain government users. So, um, so yes, yeah, so we we uh, would like to think the ADF uh, would see this as a proven and low risk option uh, that, that enhances overall resiliency and, and performance. Yeah, I think there's broad expectations uh, on EOS to get through that barrier of you know being a significant substantial Australian space company to, to be one of the companies that can get to scale mm -hmm. doing interesting R&D work but also developing services and technology for clients. That's a lot of weight on your shoulders. Um, what's been the most surprising thing about carrying you know, the weight of those expectations and, and blazing a path being one of the few listed space companies in Australia? Um, I don't lose too much sleep on it to be honest. I think we've got a really good team. Um, one of the things we've found is attracting staff. If you show the staff a vision like this, they come on board, right? So we don't have to pay super duper salaries. We don't have to, you know, they don't come to work for the money. They come for the work for the, they come for the, to work for the, for the, because um, they see they're building something special. So they're potentially building an Australian space prime, right? That's the thing, right? Compared to, you know, some folks don't love their jobs, but they go to work. Our, our folks seem to love it. It's a great environment to work in. And, you know, look, you don't get to do this many times in your career, right? So we think that story's been instrumental in getting really good people working together in a really good way. Look, thank you very much. I mean, I think you have all of our hopes with you and we wish you the best of luck for this project and for the, for the cutting edge work you're doing, not just in this, but also in, in space surveillance awareness and, uh, and a whole bunch of other areas. Um, ladies and gentlemen, would you please join me in thanking Glenn? Thank you. We now have Rebecca Shrimpton, Head of Defence, Space and Infrastructure at Austrade, who will present on trends in the global space economy, their impacts on defence and opportunities for industry. Good afternoon, everybody. It's, uh, it's an absolute delight to be here. Despite being given the dreaded after lunch slot, um, I can assure you that I, I'm, I'm confident the organisers knew what they were doing because uh, this is a really exciting story that I have to tell. And it's, uh, it's not my story. It's not anybody in particular's story. It's all of our story. So I do hope that you find it as compelling and as interesting as I do. Um, so what am I going to do today? Talk about some trends that we're seeing in the global space economy and we're going to have um, a little bit of a think about what that means for defence. Have a look at uh, where commercial opportunities are right now and where they are expected to emerge and that's really important because this is an industry, this is an area that's absolutely on the move. And again, we'll consider what that means for defence strategy and for force planning. 
Now, anybody who knows me knows that I can talk about space for far too long with a handful of marbles underwater. Um, so forgive me, I'm going to try and stick to notes so I can not go off script too much um, and, and run way out of time. Finally, what I'm going to do is actually throw up um, a slide on the US notional architecture, the Space Systems Command. And I'm going to do that because there are some really important lessons in there for us about how a US DOD is integrating commercial capabilities into its national security space. Very quick intro to, uh, to my role on my team and to Austrade and what we do, because I'm sure there are some people in this room who, who are wondering why on earth Austrade is, is talking about this and why we're here. Now, um, the majority of my team in Australia is defence-focused, but I'm growing the capacity in my space team. Um, with my background, as you would expect, I've always seen a very important overlap between civil, commercial and defence space, particularly in a small country where we need to be agile and we need to make every dollar and every investment and every capability count. Um, I'm beefing up my space team, though, in response to, as, as James said, significant investor interest in this country. We have such a great pipeline um, and we just can't service it, so I am, uh, I'm expanding. We work very closely, and this is really important to understand, with the Australian Defence Export Office. Um, Defence funds eight positions across the world employed by Austrade, and they support the defence export strategy and they support defence's industry priorities. Now, space being identified now as a sovereign industrial capability priority means that those defence directors will increasingly be also focusing on space. So you can see we've got a really nice spread globally so that we've got um, good activity, defence-focused activity in every region. And these are the regions that matter to us, but they're the regions that matter to defence. All right, Austrade's mandate, it's pretty straightforward. We help Australian companies sell products and services overseas and we attract quality productive investment into Australia to help industry grow. On the trade side, we are promoting Australian space companies abroad. We are seeking out opportunities and we are matching them to companies that we know of in Australia to make sure they can get some exports. We uh, support pitch days for specific capability sets and requirements. And really importantly, we help Australian businesses navigate international markets. Um, and when you get into the sensitivities of the, some of the capabilities we're talking about with space, that's a really important, really important part of what we do. Now, Chris this morning talked to you about the government's goal of attracting $1 billion of inbound investment in space. And Austrade's global network in 83 countries, 49 markets, is going to be very critical to help meet. And I actually think we're going to exceed that goal. Um, I don't think I'm speaking out of school here, but we are tracking our investment leads to the value of over $3 billion of inward investment. Now, not all of that will be realised. Um, there's work we have to do to make sure we're ready to, to absorb that, but um, very, very strong interest. Importantly as well, uh, we partner for success. We don't try and do anything on our own. We are always working within the whole of government effort. We have formal MOUs with both Defence and the Australian Space Agency, and one of my space team is partially seconded into the agency to help bring our commercial acumen uh, to bear in what the agency's work is doing. Now, this is where it gets really exciting. Space is actually beginning to be better understood beyond the space community itself, and that's having an impact in, in interest, um, and the more people who are speaking about this, the better. And I found um, this, this lovely quote from um, Vice President Kamala Harris very recently on a visit to NASA Goddard. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's, a, 
it's a nice capture of exactly how omnipresent space is in our lives and how important it is. Now, we've heard criticality a few times today, and I'm going to say it again, but the criticality of space is perhaps better recognised, I think, mostly because of the dynamism and the innovation that is coming from industry. Commercial achievements, they are being seen and they're being rewarded by investors. And commercial capabilities are also being noticed, rewarded and actively supported more and more by governments who are really grasping how space capabilities drive productivity gains across other industries, as well as support policy priorities in a number of non-space domestic and international issues. The benefits of space are in fact so far reaching that it is predicted that space will be one of, if not the top leading economic sector in the 21st century. So the role of commercial space driving what is often referred to as space 2.0 or new space is an inversion, as we've talked about and heard already this morning, of that old space paradigm, where it was government, military programs, expensive, highly secretive, focused on producing those exquisite solutions for high-end military problems, like missile early warning, nuclear command and control. But today, military space programs are actually working really hard to figure out how they can best connect into and benefit from a burgeoning commercial space sector. And actually, uh, James mentioned I was in the US and um, I was going back over some of my um, some of my notes and some of the articles that I collected while I was there uh, in preparation for this. And I found uh, in 2016, um, then DAS D, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defence for Space Policy, Doug Lavero. I don't know if, uh, if any of you know Doug, but he is just amazing on space. His contribution to thinking about the taxonomy of space and how civil, commercial and defence come together is, is it's absolutely worth reading. Um, in 2016, he said to the House Armed Services Committee, the technologies and opportunities of greatest significance for national security space today are being paced by advances in the commercial space sector. Interestingly, what we are seeing in the space industry is a dynamic very similar to what we saw in the positive feedback loop observed in the semiconductor industry. Instead of exponential growth in processing power and a matching decline in the cost of computing, it is rapidly declining launch costs, miniaturisation and increasingly modular architecture for satellites that are probably the key drivers that are pushing down the cost of doing almost anything in orbit. It is becoming genuinely commercially viable to launch more, to launch more and more business models into orbit. Private investors and private investment has possibly become the most important source of capital in the space industry today. And it's played its part, as I said before, in upending that old paradigm. The really disruptive innovation is and probably always will be led by private investors and by the private sector. Yet the role of government as a customer and its ability to provide certainty to the innovation cycle for companies, this matters very much. It was SpaceX, Blue Origin, private investments of Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos that really started that rapid decline of launch prices. Um, and I will note that uh, NASA did step in for SpaceX. There was a point there at which SpaceX may have failed. Um, NASA did step in and made sure they didn't and look where they are now. So the lesson there about you know, not allowing, us to be, allowing ourselves to be too derailed by failure is, is absolutely critical. And what they did, in creating that space was not only make room for themselves, but on their tail they made room for a burgeoning 
US space launch industry competing for defence contracts. Now, a lively competition of ideas and a diversification of commercial capability options is a good thing for defence and it's a good thing for industry. There are new players emerging all the time and more new players, they're failing fast, they're getting back out there and then they're succeeding. And if, uh, if any of you know the company Astra that just on the weekend, uh, for, on its fourth attempt, su successfully launched, this is what we're seeing more of. They're an emerging player, non-demonstrated, now demonstrated. So the market is producing commercial capabilities that can meet and in some cases exceeds government requirements, including for defence. Commercial actors offer cost-effective, off-the-shelf, proven capabilities, and that supports resilience, redundancy, responsiveness, and flexibility. These are all things that matter in the defence concept of assured access to space. And commercial investments to develop defence-relevant capabilities are investments that defence doesn't have to make. But governments need to be better customers for space, for commercial space, I'd say the same thing for defence more broadly, but they need to be good customers of commercial space capabilities. And they need to help ensure that the commercial sector has that certainty and that consistency to deliver at the scale and at the quality that government demands. Not only are space companies pushing out capabilities that support defence operating concepts, but they're leading the charge too on capabilities that underpin strategic and political priorities as well. Increased transparency provided by the commercial space services can reduce the capacity for irresponsible actions in space, like we saw with Cosmos 1408. And now we've talked about that enough already about what happened, but I'd like to talk about why that matters. Historically, and even this time, it takes a government system or a multinational group of, of governments time, technical, bureaucratic and political effort to build the picture of an event like this. Having immediate, shareable imagery that makes clear what a bad actor has done and ensures that data gets out there, it makes that action public in almost real time and it reduces plausible deniability. And we should acknowledge that uh, the great work done by Leo Labs, I think I've seen Terry here, uh, that the, the immediate information that got out to the general public on that event was fast, it was extraordinary. Now this helps the really important work that we've also talked about of building rules and norms, of accountability for actions in space, and it strengthens the argument for commercial space capabilities to be integrated into government and especially defence space concepts and architecture. Collaboration and integration across both commercial and defence and across national lines offers the US and its international allies and partners a really important competitive advantage. It's greater unity of effort, pooling of vital, and let's face it, limited resources, the ability to leverage a diverse range of national and commercial capabilities. And beyond that, it enables a steady flow of knowledge and expertise that upskills the entire collective endeavour. That unlocks huge potential for even more innovation and progress, creating a virtuous cycle. Now, industry expectations that this commercial dynamism of the last few years, and particularly the last two years, is a trend that's here to stay, are reflected in the literally tens of billions of dollars in private capital that is continuing to be poured into launch and satellite companies yearly. But still, there is much more yet being envisaged. And what I'm sharing with you here today is some, um, some 
analysis that came out of Quilty Analytics. Now, Chris Quilty and his company, Quilty Analytics, advised the US government. They helped them try and make good decisions about where the US government should make its investments and what it should look to the commercial sector to provide. So that's he's got a really good pedigree and great credibility in, in talking about this stuff for me. Um, and currently, commercial space companies are primarily contributing in the areas that you can see here. But new and possibly as yet undetermined industries, they will emerge in LEO and they will emerge in cislunar space. These emerging industries will not only deliver new products and services to the earth, they will support self-sustaining economic activities within cislunar space. Now to return to that important topic of assured access to space, launch is the link in the space value chain that can be a critical point of failure for any spacefaring nation. If we cannot put up what we want, when we want, and where we want, if we are relying on others to do this for us, we have a problem. And why? Again, several studies are showing that today's underlying space infrastructure is insufficient to support the development of growth of these new emerging activities and industries. Nearly 97% of space launches in the US occur from two sites. Now they have many more spaceports than that and particularly uh, ones that support horizontal launch, but nearly 97% of launches take place from either Kennedy or Vandenberg. So relying on infrastructure that's already under pressure from US national actors simply isn't viable and nor is it responsible. There are literally hundreds of new launch actors coming onto the market in the next couple of years and like Astra, they, some of them will succeed. Not all of them, but some of them will succeed. So to truly unlock the potential of this future space economy and to secure the national space requirements, national security space requirements, governments and private actors are going to have to find much better and stronger ways of working together. They need to ensure that this necessary infrastructure, the railroad tracks, if you like, to space, they've got to make sure this exists. And infrastructure, and here I'm talking largely spaceports and the, the surrounding sort of launch sector, satellite manufacture, rocket manufacture, testing, uh, that, that kind of thing, that's where government investment is probably the most productive and it's probably the most catalyzing. So quality targeted for an investment also obviously has a part to play and it can help Australia build its part of the global infrastructure needed to support the future space economy. As we go about building our industry and supporting our Australian space companies, it's going to be very important that we retain an outward looking approach. As we want our companies to grow and to scale and to, and to help meet this global demand, we are going to have the strongest outcomes where Australia's space capabilities have it in their DNA to collaborate, cooperate and integrate within a bigger ecosystem with like-minded partners and friends. Now, Australia may not be represented in every subsector of the space industry, and I don't think we need to be. Trying to do too much can be counterproductive. We can't afford to spread too few resources over too many tasks. This is just making it less and less likely that anything we do will be truly needle-moving. We absolutely can secure a valuable and trusted place within a shared space architecture and a global space economy of like-minded nations. We will need to focus policy and resources to exploit our competitive advantages, both for our own and for partners' advantage. 
All right. This is on the. This is available on the internet, so I'm not sharing anything that that I that I shouldn't hear. But it's a complex picture. There's a lot to unpack. But what I really, really want you to take away from this is all the commercial, commercial, commercial allied uh, little little notifications there in this in this notional architecture. So um, I am going to give you yet another. Oh, maybe I've gone too far. No, I'm not. I haven't. Sorry, pardon me. I'm going to give you another VP quote because she said a couple of really great things at that NASA at that NASA visit. And following on from what she said before about that ubiquitous nature of, of space and the breadth of its importance, um, is is what Nick said this morning, uh, Air, Air Commodore Hogan. Re I really like that he said this. There is a clear requirement to align and integrate space priorities under a unified national approach, approach or policy framework. I really believe that's important too. Now, at the same speech as, the, as I had the quote before, when uh, VP Harris chairs the National Space Council, as the VP does in the US system, it will be her first time on the 1st of December. She has committed to making sure that the focus of that meeting is developing a comprehensive framework for our nation's space priorities, from our civilian efforts to our military and national security efforts to STEM education, and the emerging space economy. And it is its space capabilities that enables the most powerful military on the planet to maintain continuous global presence, to deter conflict, to monitor activities across the globe in real time, and to respond when and where needed. We all know that access to space and the use of space is critical for defence, and that's why we're here talking about it today. But for defence forces, that means not only the use of the space domain, but the ability to exploit space capabilities in the service of overall military effectiveness. For more than half a century, it is space capabilities that have delivered strategic and operational superiority for the United States. And space capabilities have always played an important role in deterrence. You know, it is, its role has changed as we've seen this inversion uh, that we talked about before, and I don't have scope to talk about this. I think and I hope that Malcolm Davis will uh, a little bit later, but it's a really important topic. Because as more and more civil and commercial actors uh, appear in space, it changes the operating environment dramatically. A diverse set of resilience measures vastly complicates the technical, the political and the force structure calculus of any potential adversary. Now, the commercial space sector can augment, it can supplement traditional government-owned capabilities, and that creates significant increases in both resilience and mission capability, all the while lowering costs. Now, responsive space is something that senior leaders of the US Space Force are increasingly talking about and talking about publicly and they're looking to commercial capabilities to help achieve their outcomes. General Raymond, this year, head of uh, the US Space Force, said, if America requires an operationally relevant space force to deter or immediately respond to attacks, it must acquire and train today with a rapid response inventory and infrastructure. And he went on, when our enemies eventually attack our satellites, only a ready inventory of quick reaction satellites and agile launches would enable us to respond and reconstitute at least a partial capability within a day. Now, there are assessments that with the current systems and the current processes in the US, and General Raymond has said this himself, that could now take the US up to three years. Here's the thing. 
The systems necessary to assemble this capability exist right now in the commercial sector, reflecting those tens of billions of dollars of private capital that has gone into developing these systems. Today, a small number of commercial companies do have quick response launch systems, and this number is growing all the time. Some of these are capable of delivering a satellite into any orbit at any time in less than 24 hours, replacing a destroyed satellite and almost entirely reversing any benefit of attacking it in the first place. So why Australia, why now, and what I probably should have said is why launch, um, which is, as, as James also so fittingly said at the start, been something of an obsession for me. In Australia, space contributes to our economic prosperity. It underpins the way we connect with one another. It contributes to the development of regional Australia. It supports manufacturing jobs and growth across the country, including in new and remote areas. It boosts agricultural productivity. It provides real-time bushfire monitoring and other national disaster, natural disaster responses. It supports climate action. It can attract tourism and be tourism and it is absolutely critical to our national security. We have a genuine opportunity for Australia to leverage our natural, our political and our strategic advantages to build an outward-looking industry spearheaded by launch capabilities. This could contribute enormously to Australian defence requirements as well as those of our partners and allies who we operate with in space. It's our geography, it's our relatively low air and maritime traffic, our favourable weather, our stable and friendly business and political environment. All these things make us very attractive for launch. We have currently two private spaceports at a level of operational maturity that could support launch, and there are several more in consideration or in development phases. The goal of becoming a key southern hemisphere gateway to the skies is absolutely not beyond our reach we could plausibly provide space launch services for that full range of activities that we saw on the slide before from right here in Australia. We should be ambitious. We are uniquely well-placed for efficient access to geo, to polar and sun-synchronous orbit, to support horizontal launch and other mobile launch technologies. These commercial capabilities are being proven all the time and they are adding to the range of options that we could see operational in Australia. But let me stress, this is a here and now and it's a limited opportunity. The costs of investing in spaceports and other launch inf infrastructure are exceedingly high, still. If Australia cannot meet the demand that we're seeing in the international market from the quality and innovative companies that we want to see here helping our industry grow, um, and they are looking to lock in launches. They would love to lock them into Australia in a time frame of about 2022-23, that soon. They're going to sink those costs elsewhere. If we cannot bring ourselves online and if we cannot get the environment right, they will go elsewhere. So the opportunity to become an established, trusted and proven provider of spaceport infrastructure to service this demand, it requires action now. So we are very well placed to meet the demand, but we need to ensure our regulations are as al aligned as possible with key partners and that they reflect best practice. And as Chris acknowledged, there is a lot of effort going into this, into this work right now. We need mature and responsible risk management approaches. We need to balance responsibility and safety, which are absolutely essential, with that ability to support an entrepreneurial, technologically dynamic, and frankly, a very impatient market. Space investment is booming. 
The global space economy is predicted to get beyond 1 trillion, some are saying to around 1.5 trillion by 2030. That's an extraordinary trajectory. The way for us to find our place and grow our share of that is to optimise our strengths and to prioritise and ensure that we have a regulatory environment fit for the 21st century. So in conclusion, commercial space is today providing vital services for defence. The role of commercial space and the importance of commercial space to defence is only growing. As the commercial sector continues to develop those disruptive and creative space solutions that can be critical inputs to our defence capabilities, we need to move quickly as a government and decisively and claim our place in the new space race. There is no time to wait. Thank you. Beck, thank you. A stirring call to arms, uh, and um, if I can say this as a compliment, very non-bureaucratic of you. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I've got a couple of questions here that I want to get to. Um, one question is around, uh, and, and, and there's some very supportive comments of, of your message on launch. Um, one comment is around uh, what do we need to make Australian space companies globally competitive? So, uh, including launch companies, what's, what's the missing ingredient there from your point of view? So, what they're, what they're doing, um, what Australian space companies doing um, is entirely globally competitive. And we had a great presentation before lunch uh, from, from one of our leading space companies with you know, multiple examples of what we're doing. What's missing is the fact that we haven't quite managed to integrate them into that global system. So we haven't connected them to more customers, to more buyers. Australia as a market is too small to sustain these companies. So if we're not helping them export and if we're not attracting the kind of investment that spurs growth, then we're never going to get there. So I think perhaps that's, you know, that's where the effort needs to be. Um, that and the fact that we do have some things to address in terms of our maturity as a, as a nation and our, in our regulatory system and our licensing, uh, we have some lessons to learn and some alignment to achieve, I think, with some, with some key partners, and that would help uh, enormously as well. Just to follow on from that, I mean, do you think that Australian companies, perhaps emerging Australian space companies, perhaps aren't being aggressive enough that they need to be out there raising more money to get to global markets faster rather than kind of proving, you know, going slower, addressing the Australian market and then going for it? Look, I think we're seeing that Australian companies are reflecting uh, the trends that we're seeing in the US. So, you know, we, we have, we've done well. We've seen Gilmore, who's, who's coming up, and we'll no doubt talk about this, um, secure an incredible amount of funding and from, from super funds, from, you know, sources that are not traditionally, you know, seen to take risky bets on space companies. We've seen Fleet, uh, I think only last week, raise 36-odd million dollars. Now, there is a capacity. They are going after it. They are aggressive. Um, but again, I think we need to redouble our efforts to, to, to you know, as a, as a government and as a nation, connect what they're doing into a broader ecosystem because they just need more opportunities, they need more contracts. Um, and I think perhaps that's the other thing that we should talk to is, is moving beyond grants to contracts to, you know, what does that pathway look like from R&D uh, to, to proving a concept, to being a start-up, 
to scale up, to having, you know, to having being funded by one-off grants that you can prove something to getting a limited, like a prototype kind of contract into a longer-term contract and into um, a program, an actual defence program. I don't see that path is clearly uh, established or supported yet for Australian space companies, but we're working on it, yeah. Uh, some questions on how we build a more sort of unified uh, national space structure and strategy in Australia. Do you, do you have any thoughts on what the organisational architecture of that should look like? Should um, I mean, are there, are there ways we can make things more cohesive? That's, um, look, I just I think what's been lacking, and I think we, we heard Defence talk to this this morning, we've got silos of excellence. And what we need to do is, is bring that excellence together uh, far more effectively than we are. And I don't know what that looks like architecturally. I, sh I probably shouldn't um, put forward a view. It might be a bit forward-leaning. Um, but, you know, collaboration is key and, and we're certainly talking to each other, but structurally there's, there's potential, I guess, for us to, to make some moves that would really create that focal point, that unity, unified effort um, and set the direction across the entire both government and national system, as well as signal the international market how serious and, and well organised and coordinated we are, that might help. Right, there's more questions coming through, but we're going to have to finish, so you can ambush Beck on the way out after this speech. Um, please join me in thanking Beck for an excellent speech. And finally, we wrap the episode with Malcolm Davis, Senior Analyst at Aspie, who's going to talk about the threats to space assets and how to defend against them. Well, thank you, everyone. It's great to be back in a live event after too many Zoom conferences. Um, I want to talk about contested space, uh, the challenges that we face as a result of space weaponization and where that leaves the ADF. And it's topical, um, you know, sort of the Russians uh, with their ASAT test last week kind of like set the stage for this presentation quite well. Here's the overview of what I talk, want to talk about. What is the threat that we're facing in terms of not only kinetic kill ASATs, but also soft kill systems, which in my opinion are far more worrying because they're so much more usable than kinetic kill ASATs. And these threats are really emerging in China and Russia. Secondly, the hypersonic challenge. Um, we've all kind of followed the news on Twitter with the so-called FOBS HGV test by China. Just what does that Im imply for us in terms of space capabilities and how can maybe we contribute to the missile early warning mission in that regard? Um, then I want to go into a future ADF mission, which I think is really critical, um, space deterrence. Uh, if we're going to counter the threats posed by space weaponization, then we, we do it in two tracks. We do it firstly through the legal and the diplomatic space, and there's a lot of activity there with the open-ended working group and UN General Assembly Resolution 7536 on responsible norm, uh, norms of responsible behavior. But all that diplomatic talk is moot if at the same time um, an adversary isn't uh, deterred from using these things. So I think that there's a mission there for credible space deterrence, and I want to talk a bit about that. 
So some key questions I'll be looking at, how best can we exploit sovereign space capability and tap the local uh, commercial space sector to provide those systems, including responsive sovereign launch, which I think is really critical. Uh, what does a contested space domain mean for the role of space forces and the nature of space power? And then finish up with a look ahead uh, to 2041 and 2061 for the ADF. You know, when you think about it, this year is the 100th anniversary of the Royal Australian Air Force. Um, those flyers in 1921 were probably thinking, well, things are going to progress very slowly. In actual fact, it progressed very rapidly. And I would argue that space now starting to emerge with its own space division is going to progress very rapidly. So where do we go in terms of the potential for evolving our future space capabilities from where they are now and going into that space division into something perhaps a little bit more coherent 20 or, uh, um, uh, 20 or 40 years down the track? But firstly, let's uh, talk about the, the dangerous stuff that we're seeing. This is uh, a launch of, of the uh, uh, New Doll, uh, which is the ASAT that the Russians tested uh, a little over a week ago. Um, clearly, this has huge implications because on the one hand, uh, we're having this international dialogue towards international norms of responsible behaviour uh, and trying to negotiate bans of testing of kinetic kill ASATs. But on the other hand, the Russians have tested their own kinetic kill ASAT. So it does undermine confidence, in my opinion, that, that countries like Russia and China are serious about negotiating uh, responsible behaviour norms and also bans on uh, ASAT weapons. It raises the risk of uncontrolled development uh, because of security dilemmas. As the Russians and the Chinese move down the path of developing their, their ASAT capabilities, uh, suspicions will increase, particularly in the context of increasing and intensifying strategic competition between the US and China and also the US and Russia. So there will be greater incentive and uncertainty about how to respond to these challenges. Um, in terms of China's development, um, yes, it has tested a kinetic kill ASAT. It did that back in 2007. Uh, it also demonstrated the technology to use such a system up in GEO, uh, but it hasn't so far done any further live testing of a kinetic kill ASAT. What it has done is focus very much on demonstrating the technologies for co-orbital ASAT systems. These are obviously being portrayed as uh, you know, testing the technologies for orbital uh, repair and refuel or uh, space-based surveillance. But the same approaches in terms of rendezvous and proximity operations can be, for those sorts of valid tasks, uh, can be also applied to co-orbital ASATs using soft kill technologies. And as I said, it's that soft kill technology, the jamming, uh, electronic warfare, directed energy weapons with laser dazzling and cyber attack that I think is much more worrying because it doesn't create the space debris threat and so therefore it's much more usable by an adversary against us. So we have to think about how we respond to those soft kill capabilities. Those soft kill capabilities are particularly relevant in terms of grey zone operations. The ability of, of an adversary to either use a third party actor or to mask its activities in commercial, uh, in, through commercial space activities to carry out attacks. And most of you will have read, I'm sure, uh, the Centre for Strategic and International Studies report on this uh, called uh, Defence Against the Dark Arts in Space, which looks at grey zone threats uh, in space and how we respond to them. Um, in terms of uh, counter space and warfare, um, 
So as I said, we're, we're working towards building these norms of responsible behaviour in space. It's really critical following UN General Assembly Resolution 7536 and now with the establishment of the open-ended working group, there's a path going forward. But the problem is there's that disconnect between that diplomatic and, uh, and international diplomatic and legal activity and the growing strategic competition between major powers in space. Um, and I think that increasingly likely, even though... Uh, as uh, uh, Air Commodore Gordon suggested this morning, we don't talk about space as a warfighting domain. We talk about it as an operational domain. We all understand that that involves warfighting and that in the next war, probably the first shots that will be fired will be fired in space. And so you are seeing a response on the part of Western liberal democracies. You're seeing the establishment of space forces uh, and new organisational change that is better uh, adapted to respond to a more contested space domain. You're seeing a much more mature and sophisticated approach to our thinking about space power and the role of space uh, and the utility of, of space as an operational domain. Um, I think the growth of independent space forces in particular will drive new thinking on space warfare. And here I think very much in terms of how the establishment of independent air forces, the United States Air Force in 1947, the RAF in, in 20, uh, 1921, uh, drove thinking about air power thought. And I wonder whether in the next 100 years for the Royal Australian Air Force, how our thinking about space power will evolve as we move closer and closer towards independent space forces. We're not there yet. Uh, the ADF Space Command, uh, Space Division is not a, a space force per se, uh, but it is moving down that track. Now, whether we end up at that point, I think is something that would be useful to debate. But certainly I think that in the same way that air power uh, was evolving and developing in the 20th, 20th century. Um, space power will develop in the 21st century, and space is happening faster in some respects than air power. You are starting to see new technologies, small satellites, reusable launch vehicles, um, uh, the potential for exploiting space resources to create manufacturing in space, and all the opportunities that opens up. So the potential there for space as a concept and a, a space warfare as a concept to evolve as new technologies appear and the cost to get into space reduces, I think is really important. Obviously hypersonic threats are you know, front and centre in, in the minds of many people. Uh, hypersonic weapons are clearly there uh, confronting us. Um, the Chinese uh, did a test uh, of an orbital bombardment system. Uh, the, the, everyone initially thought it was a fractional orbital bombardment system or a FOBS, but the interesting thing there was that they combined this system with a hypersonic glide vehicle. And now it appears that the hypersonic glide vehicle uh, in its terminal phase released some sort of missile or, or, or countermeasure system uh, at above Mach 5. So it's not a Sputnik moment in the sense that you know, it's ground-breaking or ground-shattering, but it is important nevertheless because it opens up new vulnerabilities for you, the United States and for Western allies in how the Chinese think about the utilisation of these types of capabilities. And it's going to force, uh, I think, the US and its allies to respond in terms of countermeasures and in terms of enhanced detection systems. Uh, and if you look at that trajectory, and we don't have a laser pointer here, sadly, but if you look at that trajectory of the FOBS launch, it go, passes very close to Australia's west coast. 
that should be significant in terms of what we can do under AUKUS to contribute towards monitoring these sorts of tests in the future in terms of ground-based radar systems and potentially space-based uh, missile early warning. I'm talking Australia there, not necessarily just the US. So we need to be thinking very much about how overhead persistent infrared technologies will evolve in the coming years um, to meet those hypersonic threats. So we're no longer just facing traditional ballistic missiles, we're facing uh, global range orbital hypersonic vehicles that can deliver uh, precision attack from uh, hypersonic speeds and, and potentially from at least very high altitude, if not space. That's a whole new type of threat that we face. So how can Australia burden share with key US partners, particularly in terms of burden sharing through AUKUS? Uh, AUKUS didn't have a space component to it when it was released, which I thought odd, given how important space is. So really, we need to think about how space can play a role in AUKUS. And to me, one of the uh, most obvious ways, given the hypersonic threat, given the um, the challenge of space weaponization is for Australia to start thinking about sovereign space-based missile early warning capabilities as a future major project going forward. I'll talk a bit more about that. But you are seeing commercial space companies, uh, Leo Labs, LIDOS are all providing technology solutions and capability solutions that could enable us to do this at reasonable cost and relatively quickly uh, on piggybacking on other existing space projects. So this is an opportunity uh, to enhance the space dimension of AUKUS and also to work with the Quad, which is really critical in terms of Japan and India. If we're not going to bring Japan into AUKUS and turn it into JAUKUS, then let's work through um, the Quad and really develop that component of space cooperation. The Quad, as, as an organisation, of course, uh, isn't really military-focused, but everything that Quad uh, um, dialogues talk about in terms of critical and emerging technologies has a dual role application for military purposes. And there's, that includes space. So let's actually explore how we do that in terms of future uh, space capabilities beyond the major projects such as DEF 799 Phase 2 and JP 9102B, as well as uh, positioning, navigation and timing and SSA. Uh, I think that a high-low mix approach whereby we might invest in large satellites from the aerospace primes for things like JP9102B um, uh, is an obvious step, but we could do the low end of the mix with small satellites and sovereign space launch uh, that could then support not only AUKUS but also the Quad in terms of expanding cooperation and partnership with, uh, with key partners. The US uh, next-gen overhead persistent infrared system, uh, which is a SIBAS, uh, ESPERS replacement, I think is an obvious step where we could support the US and other key partners by providing small satellite technologies for space-based missile early warning. Uh, and in addition, uh, the establishment of advanced ground-based radar and commercial space surveillance is another area, and I think we've already talked about that extensively. So what are the next steps for uh, the ADF in space, given this contested environment? We'll need to have space capabilities that, that are resilient. Um, so the first steps in that regard are to burden share in orbit, to build space deterrence. 
Um, as I said, we need to be able to demonstrate to an adversary that their use of anti-satellite capabilities um, ultimately don't pay off. They might take down some satellites, but it, it's impossible for them to do a space Pearl Harbor and take down everything quickly. And we can always reconstitute lost space capabilities quickly because we're building a sovereign launch industry in this country and we're building sovereign satellite manufacturing so that we can naturally deploy small satellites and we can augment space capabilities across the small and the many rather than concentrating on the few. So I think that needs to be a next step beyond the major space projects that we're looking at now. The ADF um, space domain review ultimately needs to develop um, a space control strategy and deliver updated doctrine. And I'll get into the idea uh, or the belief that I have that this country needs a national space strategy following on from the space domain review. That's a critical next step that we need to take within the early in the next uh, term of the next government. I think we're seeing uh, uh, Australia's uh, uh, Defence Department getting serious about space control. We're already talking about space electronic warfare uh, as, as a possible step to defend and protect satellites and at least have some way of responding if our much vaunted space surveillance architecture can see threats approaching our satellites. The worst thing that could happen would be for us to simply sit back and watch and we can do nothing to protect our satellites. So let's actually have a means to defend our satellites. Let me now move on to space deterrence. Um, and here, um, in addition to uh, making it clear to an adversary that they will pay a cost if they utilise counter space capabilities, we need to make their counter space capabilities less effective. And the, the, the whole approach there is through space resilience. And there's a couple of key ways to do that. First is augmentation. Rather than having everything concentrated on a small number of very big very large, very expensive satellites, and that's our lot. We need to be expand our space capabilities across a, a larger number of small satellites that complement those high-end birds, but give us um, a survivable uh, capability that degrades gracefully rather than catastrophically. So that means disaggregation of space support. We still have the JP9102Bs and the DEF799 uh, Phase 2s, but we also have additional, uh, an additional low-end layer that basically means it's more difficult for an adversary uh, to, uh, to undertake a comprehensive attack. We diversify also to near-space assets. So rather than just using space, we exploit near-space. And uh, I know, uh, I think it's Talus that have uh, capabilities there with the Zephyr uh, that they're, uh, or is it Airbus? I'm not sure, it's Airbus, sorry. <laughs> Okay, I just shot myself in the foot there. Uh, Airbus um, with the Zephyr uh, that have uh, that sort of high altitude, long endurance UAV uh, that gives us that ability to diversify uh, to near space. And finally, reconstitution. The ability to be able to deploy satellites on Australian launch vehicles from Australian launch sites as needed uh, in a responsive manner. All this is really critical alongside um, defensive capabilities to make it more difficult for an adversary to attack our systems. We also need to have the ability to develop asymmetric responses, so if they attack our satellites, we can maybe do airstrikes on their critical infrastructure on the Earth. And not just military, but also preemptive political. So they, they pay a price. When you think about the Russian ASAT test of last week, 
there has been a lot of criticism online and in the social media uh, from interested parties in the space policy community. But what price have they really paid? Absolutely nothing. There's been no serious political or economic sanctions imposed on Russia as a result of that test. They've got a diplomatic slap on the wrist. That's unacceptable. We need to be able to impose costs on them politically and economically. And space deterrence must work from peace through to war to protect against sort of grey zone challenges that we might face. I'll rush through this because I'm aware that you're, I'm running up against time. Um, space domain awareness is vital. Um, we've already got a project with that, with JP9360. Um, and I think the potential for exploiting commercial uh, opportunities there with projects like Lockheed Martin Fire Opal, uh, Innovore Technologies Project Hyperion, EOS Australia doing laser optical space surveillance is, is really great because it, it's not relying exclusively on a limited number of sensors on the ground. Um, so we need to be able to impose cost, communicate the ability and the will to do so and not be self-deterred, but the starting point must be understanding what is happening up there above uh, in space. Let me move quickly on. As I said, it's time for a national space strategy. Uh, that has to be a next step beyond the Department of Defence's space domain review. Um, so that has to bring together all the key parties in space as a whole of government and a whole of nation approach to work out where exactly we are going as a country in space. What are our objectives? How do we achieve those objectives? And what resources do we need to achieve them? We're part of the way there with the civil space strategy that was released by the Space Agency in 2019 and now the Space Domain Review. But what we need is an overarching document that brings everything together and is open to the general public. We need to exploit the AUKUS moment. Space, as I said, was left off the list of areas of cooperation, which was strange. Um, so we need to expand both AUKUS and the Quad uh, in terms of space cooperation and how can we exploit those windows of opportunity, that AUKUS moment going forward. Um, a couple of other points. Uh, obviously, responsive space launch is critical. Uh, we won't truly have sovereign space until we have responsive space launch, where Australian satellites are launched on Australian launch vehicles from Australian launch sites. And I know that this will be covered more by Adam later on and also by Scott Wallace in, on the panel later on. Uh, the ability to contribute to space resilience and allies, um, to expand small satellite development and manufacturing quickly the ability to use fourth industrial revolution technologies to manufacture satellites quickly uh, on a mass production line. A ground segment that matches the space segment um, and multilateral space cooperation is important too. And I think it's also vital to think beyond the brown water, the brown water being the Leo to Geo environment, and to look out to the blue water, the cislunar uh, region. Because as the US, China, Russia and others move out there to undertake commercial space activities to exploit uh, resources, there will be increasing competition. So we need to think about how we can play a role alongside our partners in ensuring stability and security even out there. And I think that the parallels between space power in the 21st century and air power in the 20th century are really interesting. Um, we shouldn't think in terms of aerospace power, that's the wrong term, but we should think about how space power as a concept is going to evolve, particularly as more advanced technologies 
come along. Uh, this you know, image of the Skylon space plane, I think, is really interesting because it, it, it basically says, yes, we are relying on rockets at the moment, but what happens if we can, we can uh, basically have something like Skylon that takes off under its own power like an airliner, flies into orbit, delivers a payload, and then re-enters and lands under its own power? How does that change space power? And what does the role of the ADF look like in 2041 and 2061 when these sorts of technologies and others become possible? And um, we're just about out of time, so I'll finish there. Thank you. Thank you, Malcolm. I gave you 10 minutes. You took 20, but it felt like 15. Sorry. <laughs> um, I think there'd be great interest in, uh, if you're willing to make those slides available, I think yeah. there'd be great interest for people to be able to go back through those and look at them yeah. in a more detailed way, and I know you'll be available for questions afterwards. Two quick questions before we go to afternoon tea. One hard, one easy. Right. Um, the hard question, defence on launch. You've made a compelling case for... Um, prioritising launch for national security reasons. Beck and others have made a compelling case for prioritising launch for commercial reasons. What should defence be saying on launch? What, what markers should they be putting out there? Uh, I would say that defence should be making the case, as should the commercial side, uh, that if we want to be really sovereign as a space power, we need to be able to launch our own satellites from Australia. Uh, we need to be able to do this in a manner that's, that's not constrained by international timetables. Uh, particularly in terms of space resilience and being able to burden share in orbit to, in terms of space deterrence. So in other words, if we, want to, if we want to bear our load in terms of deterring hostile use of counter space capabilities and preventing a space pill harbour, Australia needs to be able to do more than just put out a satellite in a queue and wait for that satellite to be launched by someone else. We need to have a, a responsive space launch capability here in Australia that serves the needs not only of the ADF, but also of the United States and all our other key partners. And that would, that would set a marker for private investment to follow. Yep. Second question is the easy one. You are one of the few think tank voices talking about space in a defence context in Australia. How do we grow more of you and how do we scale that capability? That's a hard question, actually. <laughs> uh, look, I think it's, it's, it's generally getting the message out to decision makers and to stakeholders that space really matters, that it's vital. And we need to have more thinkers on space uh, outside of government. Government do their bit, but there needs to be people, <clears throat> people who shape the debate and are free to say what they think uh, and really make the case that space is critical. Because if we don't, if we just have the voices from within government and from within the commercial sector, we're only going to get um, uh, exposure to a limited audience. We're basically speaking to ourselves. Um, what we need to do is get the message out to the broader general public that space really matters, and here's why, and this is why we need to have more thinkers on this area. Excellent. Ladies and gentlemen, please thank Malcolm. Thank you. Thanks to everyone for listening once again. And don't forget, if you enjoyed this episode, you can like us on iTunes or in your podcatcher of choice as this helps others discover our show. Meanwhile, thanks for tuning in and we'll be back in the not too distant future with another informative episode. The ADM Podcast is produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Australian Defence Magazine, a Yaffa Media title. 
The views of the people appearing on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Australian Defence Magazine, the Department of Defence or the guest's employer. If you wish to use any of the audio in this podcast, please contact Australian Defence Magazine via their website, australiandefence.com.au or via email at defmag at yaffa.com.au. You've been listening to a Yaffa Media Podcast. Southern Skies Media.